You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is James Danko. In 2011, he became the 21st president of Butler University. During his tenure, he has led a strategy to establish the university as a higher education innovator through the pursuit of creative new programs and approaches to advance Butler's core mission as one that integrates a liberal arts foundation with professional preparation, and to strengthen Butler's founding principles of inclusivity, community, engagement, and academic excellence. President Danko, thank you for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. My only connection with Butler University is the fact that I grew up in Irvington Hmm. and lived on University Avenue. Wow. And didn't realize the connection until much later. Had lunch with Mark Miles a couple of years ago at the Steer Inn at 10th and uh, Emerson, a great place if you've never been there. And he didn't realize that Butler used to be located in Irvington. Yeah. So we're not here to scold you for moving the university. I was uh, not your I was, fault. I was nowhere here at that time. Not your fault. There's a lot of other things I get I could blame for, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I and I, I also get uh, you know praise for things that I had nothing to do with. So it's kind of you know it's a zero sum game sometimes, right? It's a little bit like a marriage. Yeah. <laughs> do you enjoy it? I do absolutely do. It? I I am uh, coming up on my 11th anniversary. We uh, my wife Bethany and myself got here uh, August 1st of uh, 2011. And um, I can't believe that 11 years has gone by. In my head, you know, you, you kind of say, geez, if you could just survive for five or six years. So, you know, at least you show some uh, credibility or legitimacy. And, and here it is, uh, you know, I'll be entering my 12th year and it's fantastic. And I'm as energized uh, as I ever have been at the job. Had you heard much of Butler prior to assuming the position as president. You know, you know, I really had not. I mean, probably like a lot of people, uh, you became aware of it in 2010, uh, you know, when uh, the David Goliath Butler, uh, you know, March Madness story occurred and ended up in that uh, final game and that, uh, you know, terrible final shot that people remember against Duke. And so, uh, again, probably like a lot of people, even as I talked about this job and the opportunity, it's like, well, yeah, I've heard of Butler. 
but it didn't go much beyond there. Where where is Butler and 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 what it's about that type of thing, and and that's why it kind of teed up a great uh, opportunity for me, quite frankly. And then when it happened again the following year. That was the year I was being interviewed. So in 2011, the the way they do this presidential thing, it's a rather drawn out process. And uh, at some point, they had it narrowed down to, I think, about 16 candidates. The next kind of phase of the search after they narrowed down from whatever, 100 candidates to 16, is they invite that uh, group of people for hour and 15 minute uh, interviews. And this was held in Chicago. So you could fly in and out of O'Hare Airport. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the day I was being interviewed, it uh, uh, it was a it was either a f- Friday or Saturday because that night uh, Butler was going to be playing Florida uh, in a, a game, a regional mm-hmm. game, and they won that game. So, uh, and as as that kind of March Madness progressed, so did the search for a president. Um, and so uh, I know that final championship game, it was down to the final four candidates for us, just like it was down to the final four. And in some ways, I think what I remember running through my mind would this would be really cool for Butler to win. But then it was like, well, wait a minute. Will that affect the search in some way? Will they be, if they win the game, maybe they'll be so great. They'll say, you know what? We could do better for a president. Let's, <laughs> let's go back out and find somebody else. But but unfortunately for Butler, they did not quite win that uh, game against Connecticut. And I guess fortunately for me, I, I got chosen amongst those candidates for this position. When you are being interviewed for a position such as this, what goes through your mind? What do you rehearse your answers? Are you worried about what they're going to ask? I mean, how much of it is your personal journey versus kind of your strategic outlook for the institution? Well, it's a combination of you know, it's not just the person, but obviously they want to in any kind of leadership search like that. Even when I was kind of in dean searches uh, prior to here, um, you know, there's got to be a strong intersection across those two things, right? As terms of the prep. Um, I guess I'd have to roll out the two or three notebooks (laughs) with 50 potential questions that I answered on paper before I walked into that room. And even enough where I had the background in every trustee and and I could integrate that kind of information uh, into my answers. And not only is it a matter of interviewing well, but it's a matter of is the fit there, right? And and you want to make sure uh, that you understand the strategy and the trajectory and the finances and everything of the place you're going into. Because you want to, in my case, I, I, you know, my career probably is parallel with opportunities wherein I felt that there was upside potential because I look at myself as kind of a, a business and brand builder intersected with having been at some great uh, higher education institution. So in this case, it, it was really a perfect fit, I felt. And, and the, the trustees said that, too, at the time, and they, they continue to say that. A lot of times institutions end up finding the right person. Uh, and so, yes, a lot of homework went into it and a lot of combination of, of your own background and, and uh, the university itself. Prior to this, you were at Villanova, is that correct? Right, yep. And that's how close to Philadelphia, or is it actually it's, in it? It's, it's on the area they call the Main Line, which is about 13 miles uh, uh, outside the city. That was the area back in the days that the industrialists had their mansions, and, mm-hmm. and the railroad was built for that, thus the Main Line. And so Villanova was a, a stop on that train back in the day, and uh, the, the little township of Villanova is there, but it's very close to the city of Philadelphia. So a private institution within a metropolitan area, much like Butler, is that something that you enjoy, that combination? I think what I like is the combination. I've been at large state institutions. I started at the University of Michigan 
Uh, I've been at University of Washington, UNC Chapel Hill. And once I got to Dartmouth, which is about 4,000, 5,000 students and Villanova, 6,000, 7,000, uh, I like the smaller private university. I like universities that um, you've got a little bit more intimate uh, interaction uh, with students, faculty, staff. So it does have a bit more of a community feel. Um, there's another aspect of that, too, that I think plays into my own background in that I am a bit unusual in the academic world. I, I'm an entrepreneur turned academician. I, my highest degree is an MBA, so I did not rise out of the faculty side. I did not have a PhD. So uh, a, a fit for me would not become president of a you know top 10 or 15 research institution, uh, but rather institutions like a Butler that, that might fit better with uh, the needs of the institution and my, my own background and a bit more open-mindedness to uh, having a president that has come from a path less taken, so to speak. How does your background as an entrepreneur help you, not only in terms of leadership, but maybe kind of connecting with the fact that most of your students aren't going to go on to academia? Yeah. Well, you know, I've taught at a couple places in the past and um, taught entrepreneurship. And, uh, you know, the fit was quite positive there, right? I, it, it's, uh, so at least the alignment with the students, to your point, many are going out for successful careers, hopefully. Uh, so, so that fits. But I do think, you know, as, you're, as you think about entrepreneurship, you know, my mind can't help but go toward creativity and, and, and innovation. Um, and the timing was right in terms of institutions now realizing that you know, higher education was moving away from a, the kind of the last standing traditional, you know, if you want to call it a business enterprise, right? Uh, they've kind of resisted all the change that pretty much has disrupted every other type of industry, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and finally, I mean, higher ed's day has come. The disruption is real. Uh, non-academic uh, providers of education are very much a thing in the marketplace. So institutions had to think in a more innovative and creative way. They had to be open to pursuing uh, business opportunities. Uh, so my background, I think, as an entrepreneur lent itself to that because, you know, starting at age 19 when I started my little one-man business, you know, uh, I had to find new opportunities, new business paths, uh, and, and you had to, th- you know, come up with them. You had to kind of figured out how to raise the capital, pursue them. You had to bootstrap your way up, uh, which is very much uh, relevant for a institution like a, like a Butler University. You know, we're not, we don't have the same endowment or wealth that other places do. So a lot of this is finding an opportunity, figuring out a path to it, oftentimes uh, bootstrapping yourself on limited resources to achieve some, you know, success. 11 years ago, I started my company when I left Mayor Ballard's office, Veteran Strategies. I didn't know anything about anything having to do with business, none, zero. By some sort of miracle, it's still alive. Yeah. What could you have taught me as a 19-year-old? I think one of the great things as a 19-year-old is, is kind of like you don't have anything to worry about, so to speak, right? Still living at home with your parents, no other mouths to feed, so to speak. I know it's a lot tougher, you know, I'm going to guess you were older than 19 when you started your business 11 years ago, and you have other responsibilities, and you have other people that depend on you. So number one, it's a bit more freeing in terms of the opportunity to, to, to mess up a few things along the way. I, so I, th- I think a lot of it is you've got to, you've got to kind of um, 
not let fear get in the way if you think that there's opportunity, right? Um, and fear has to be mixed in with a healthy dose of realism. You can't just say, hey, as, as long as I work hard, I'm going to achieve that. You know, I, that's, that's not realistic. Um, but really, pursuing a dream and an idea, if you really have evidence and, and, and you're really committed to it, uh, regardless of where you might be at that stage of your life, would, would certainly be... Uh, uh, be important. And, and as I have found uh, a consistent thing, even in my higher education experience, is you've got to surround yourself with people who you trust and who you will treat as if they're a fellow owner of the enterprise. I, I turned myself on to some books back when I was running my business around, uh, you know, a company of business owners and the notion of cut people in on your success. And I had you know, by the, I, I, I've moved from medical equipment into fitness equipment when it wasn't even an industry at the time, quite frankly, and eventually had a half dozen uh, retail stores in Ohio. And a turning point for me for success was when I decided to do open book management. I just shared with the managers, here's, here's all the facts. And I tell you what, henceforth, I'm going to give you all, you know, 20, 25% of the bottom line. It changed performance immediately. I mean, people instead of like, hey, I'm going to go hire somebody else or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm going to drop this equipment off my way home as opposed to this or that. People started to think as if they were part of the the enterprise and they were more invested in the success. And as a result, the business just went up. And that's true here. I mean, one, one of the things that I'm probably most proud of is the amazing leadership team that we have here. And it's cited consistently from trustees. I had a faculty member tell me that yesterday, as a matter of fact, sitting in the chair right next to where you're at right now, uh, that nobody would have thought that the, the quality of leadership that we have on that team would be what it is today. And that makes a big difference. What has exceeded your expectations at Butler. I mean, you take a job, you get a chance and you go for it and you get selected and you know everyone's psyched and happy as they should be. And then you get there and go, okay, I thought all these things were going to be great, but these one or two things are off the charts. <laughs> um, well, one, you, you know, again, you, you imagine you could do it and your track record might indicate that you will be, but there's still a I think I think in a lot of successful people, there's still a little bit of that imposter syndrome, like, oh, my God, you know, we really did that as opposed to, well, of course we did that. You know, <laughs> uh, we say that publicly that, yes, of course that happened. That's how I set it out to be. We, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that's not uh, that's not real. So I I, I uh, my problem, I still do wake up. And I think the reason I'm energized is I I still wake up every day thinking, oh, my God, we're falling behind, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and the competition isn't sometimes with other universities that it is it is with your own head right and and um so pressure. pressure just like thinking you got we got to move faster we got you know you know the the demographic all these things we keep hearing in higher ed demographic cliff the cost of education all the societal pressures on the on and on you think geez we're we're falling behind every day not getting ahead and and every so often my wife is pretty good at this occasionally you will be walking on campus she goes you know some of this stuff wouldn't have been here if you didn't do X. And I kind of say, well, maybe. But um, but the demographic cliff is coming. Oh, it, and it is. You As know, a result of the recession of, of 2008. And, 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 and uh, yeah, the uh, um, 
it is reality. There's less students in the pipeline. I mean, we were, we've seen that. We, we know how many people in demographics are born and how many are going to be here at age 18. So that has been well known for us. And we've been talking about that on campus, you know, going back to 2011. Um, and now it's been exacerbated by pandemic and economic realities and people questioning the value of education as you have, you know, these kind of issues happening in our, in our country uh, where there seems to be motivation by a fair number of people to kind of denigrate uh, institutions and including higher education for whatever reason they might want to do that. So people start to question higher ed or they question the media or they question X, mm-hmm. right? So we're, we're under a, a, vari- a variation of that as well. And that doesn't help uh, if, if you start to get a rising generation that says, you know, I really don't need to go to higher ed. They, you know, they're just going to brainwash us or whatever they might believe. So you also you're accumulate all this debt and then it's going to take me forever to pay it yeah. back. And- yeah. Yeah, where all the evidence, by the way, shows quite the opposite. You know, right up to the current moment, you go look at the the uh, uh, ROI on uh, college tuition and a college education, and those people are by far more successful than not having a college degree. So you mentioned a few minutes ago disruption in the higher education world. Do you have some examples that you find that you found or that you look at and go, you know, person X or person Y is doing it the right way, and that's or someone is fostering or leading a long delayed, much needed conversation. Yeah. You know, there, there's so many people that are doing that. I think in education, the education space or higher ed, if I was to think across presidents who I've come across and had good conversations, uh, certainly Michael Crow at Arizona state. In fact, I I've taken our leadership team out there. Uh, you know, the way he has, you know, th- think about, making big time creative progress at a place like Arizona State, which is like 50,000 students mm-hmm. when he got there and, and they've gone into to new space and he's been able to change the organizational structure and a number of things. And, and Paul LeBlanc at University of Southern New Hampshire, who had a university about the size of, of Butler back in the early 2000s. And th- there was no way they were going to be successful if they continued to be in that uh, undergrad residential uh, space. And so he got very aggressive about the online education and, and you know, where, where they now have incredible resource capabilities and he's been able to use that to expand. Um, you know, you, you certainly have um, uh, people thinking, I'm not sure I could think of names right off the top of my head, that, that are kind of in the non-traditional education space that are, that are making an impact as well. So. Is there a sweet spot for Butler in terms of both curriculum and size? not too big, but you still want to grow, want to be more attractive to people who are looking at different options? The the issue with that, say we would stay the course of being 90% undergrad residential, is that I would think any reasonable person that's looking at the trends and the data would realize at some point you're going to hit a wall. And, and um, the affordability of education and, and the, the uh, number of students perhaps interested in that traditional form of education, um, you're not going to have as many. And so the, the, the problem and the, our opportunity we have pursued is to try to diversify, you know, your, your opportunities or if I could be so bold as a college president and say diversify your revenue sources, which, you know, some uh, traditional academicians don't like to think about it as a business. But the reality is any one of these places, Butler's a $160 million business, 
And if you're dependent on just one major revenue stream to succeed for the next 10 or 12 years, it's probably, there's not a lot of upside potential there. So in terms of a sweet spot, I think a sweet spot for Butler is to have a strong undergrad residential program. We're at about 4,600 full-time equivalents in undergrad residential right now. Um, but I worry that that'll probably settle in in the, about the 4,000 range at some point. So how do you expand that? What, what are other opportunities are out there? And we're doing a lot in uh, uh, pursuing online uh, programs, professional education, working closely. We have some great uh, uh, partnerships in the state of Indiana where we're providing education to a healthcare company as one and other types of companies where we come in there and work with them side by side on their business strategies and help educate their people. Um, so we, we're going to continue to uh, pursue those the way I kind of frame it out. You know, you've got to have some general goals that at some point in time, we should maybe be 60, 40, 50, 50, so that you don't have everything in the current uh, educational model that we have. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're speaking with Butler University President James Danko. Is there a part of your job that you say to yourself, man, I didn't know I was going to have to spend this much time doing. I cut the grass last week though. I didn't expect, no, <laughs> a lot of grass here. Yeah. It's like, really? I got paid to do that. <laughs> no. Um, another thing I think that's interesting and maybe why I, uh, have gravitated toward this size institution is it is a little bit like the entrepreneurial side. I mean, as the owner of a business that grew from one to, I don't know what I might have had at the end, 40 or so people, uh, you do it all, right? You're, you're wearing many hats. So, you know, uh, one minute I'm kind of sitting down with a neurosurgeon trying to convince him to send business my way. The next I'm dealing with a, a customer that wants to buy a cane tip. And, you know, the next you have to worry about the finances or you have to really go out and cut the grass, which mm-hmm. I did back then. Uh, that's how I worked my way through college uh, for the first year as well. When you're in a size institution like Butler, um, the president is also kind of expected to have his or her hands in a lot of things, right? And so you get a lot of students, faculty, staff, parents that go directly to the president. It's a little bit like today. I'm, I want to talk to the manager. And so you have to have, uh, you have to be reasonably active in a lot of areas. And there's expectation that you personally are, are going to be engaged. And I probably, I know I'm more engaged in a lot of things here than if I was running Arizona State, you know, Ohio State and so forth. And, and again, in some ways that plays well to me because I think there's a strong of a a CEO mentality is there is a COO mentality and sometimes sprinkle in a little CFO mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the job really is probably closer to a mayor of a small city because of the range of things, including housing and food and uh, everything else, uh, police force, uh, things that happen here on our campus. So much of, and we've talked to a few college presidents on the podcast, involves asking for money, raising money through philanthropy or whatever. Is that comfortable for you? You know, in in politics, I did the communication side and never could have done fundraising. Never. And then a lot of the fundraisers are like, well, this is easy. I don't want to talk to reporters, which is what I did. How tough is it to, I mean, let's use, I mean, someone with Mark Apple's money, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Tens and tens of millions of dollars, dollars, right? How do you go to someone like that and go, give me give me some money. I want to name a building after you, and this is why it's important. Is that hard to do? 
it would be hard if you didn't have credibility and if you didn't believe in the product, right? And and again, I think one of the probably advantages I have over somebody that might have risen through the academic world where they were a research and a scholar and a teacher and they were very focused on kind of an, a niche and so forth is the lack of experience, right? And so um, even as a, you know... I remember being 12 years old. I couldn't wait to be able to deliver the Cleveland Press. And I I, I used to be this substitute uh, uh, newspaper carrier when I was 10 years old. And they wouldn't let me have a route until I was 12. <laughs> and, and I finally got it. And they used to, believe it or not, even as a 12-year-old newspaper carrier, every few months they, the district manager would gather all the – newspaper and they were boys at the time um you know for the big contest you have to sell up to six six subscriptions and i used to love going door to door i remember my pitch maybe now i i should have had more or may, i was either clever or maybe i was lacking a little something i remember going up to customers and say hey you know i'm going to get this trip to toronto and if i just sell one more you know and and <laughs> and, I, and i think even with one I, you know what i'm going to pay for this one myself and they eventually say yes and so you you know i think even early on i was learning how to close uh, uh the deal and then when i had my own company you know i mentioned a neurosurgeon a minute ago that's a, that's a legitimate story i mean i i had ended up opening this business and i was competing with the former company I worked for. And, and there was a very powerful team of neurosurgeons who sent a lot of business to our business as a medical provider. Part of our business was going into the hospitals and putting orthotic braces on and traction and uh, going into this neurosurgeon who was to me like, this is a, like a godlike figure mm. waiting like this. His receptionist looked at me like, what do you want? You know, you're just a little <laughs> kid. And I go, I need to talk to Dr. Sureski. And, and, and he saw me at the end of the day and I kind of told him, I go, you know, doctor, when I was working at the other company, I was the one that did XX and X and I've started this up and I hope you, I hope you'll consider me. And I hear I have these little prescription pads. You could write your orders on that. He opens up the door and he threw away the pads from the other company and put mine there. And that was closing an order at mm. age 19 to 20. And you know what? There's something about that. It gets in your blood a bit. It's like, one, I believed in my product because I was selling myself. Uh, two, I was talking to a, a highly credible individual who, by the way, 15 years later, we became partners in a business. Mm. So um, I've been selling all, you know, my whole life. And, and so going in to ask a donor for money, I believe in Butler. We've got a great product. You're usually talking to an alumni who's been successful. And to say to them, hey, what have you accomplished in your lifetime and how much? You start with asking some questions where they say yes to. And then the final tip on all of that is the last question is like, would you mind giving us a million dollars? Then you have to shut up because the next person that talked bought it. And so hopefully they say yes. And as opposed to me saying, well, I know, I know you need to go check with someone. No. Would you mind, Mark, giving me a million dollars? He's got it. And then you just wait for the silence and you, you, close, the, <laughs> you close the order. So. Well, we should, we should acknowledge uh, someone I've met through politics years and years ago who was taken from us tragically and that's Andre Lacey who was an incredibly kind man very personable ridiculously successful I know he was a major donor to the university tell us a little bit your impressions and your feelings about Mr. Lacey yeah I mean I obviously only met him for the first time coming here to Indiana and early on I heard about him uh, our board chair at the time Craig Fenneman uh, was quite close to him. I think they were uh, in YPO together, had some relationship through that, um, and uh, 
had a chance to meet with him. And then we, we, we first, uh, I think we just started setting up the series of lunches, whether it was two, three, or maybe four times a year. He would always come into those with an article for me to read. And we had a lot of back and forth around economic theory and about small business. Of course, I had stories to share, not certainly at the level of, of success or wealth uh, that he had, but enough where we just, you know, we really hit it off. And uh, a little bit to, again, asking, you know, for, for the kind of the order, so to speak. I remember when it's, you know, it's, it was time and, and um, um, he had no real Butler connection. He was an alum here. In fact, he's an alum of Denison. Uh, and, and I had told him really what I absolutely believe, like, uh, you know, a lifetime testimony to your success and to your family's legacy and your name is important to this region and to this state. And I really think that having your name affiliated with Butler on our new business school building and what we're trying to build there, and he believed in what we were doing. That was another part of it. He knew our students had this requirement for, you know, a couple uh, internships and hands-on connecting theory with practice, which he believed in. So all those conversations gave me insights into his thinking to identify that, you know, there really is a good fit here. And, and uh, when I approached him, you never know how that's going to go. Hey, what do you think about, you know, naming the business school or the building and or both? Uh, and, he, and he said, you know, thank you for asking me. I, I never thought about that. I go, well, think of other business schools, Cranard and so forth, uh, uh, where, where great names are attached. We'd like you to be attached to Butler. And within, he said, let me think about it. Two, three weeks later, I get a call. And this is one of those things you think. My God, you know, there was a big ass. There's probably no way I'm probably gonna probably gonna get the oh, could I could I name a, a classroom? And he says, you know, I've thought I thought about it. I want you to come down and meet with me. And and he he said, I've decided to do it. I still remember that too because I had asked him about the building or the business. I go, well, which did you decide? <laughs> um, but getting back to him as a man, I mean, I, I couldn't be more pleased with having uh, that family name and the the legacy and the impact and the success that Andre Lacy has had to have that uh, affiliated with our business school. And and the, the one or two years, whatever it was that he was here, he would show up. I mean, we gave him an office and the number of students he met with and fa- faculty and staff that would come to him for advice. Um, I know that he really, really enjoyed his time and it was a great way for him to give back in so many ways to the community. Should know that um, Andre and Julia Lacey uh, donated a gift of $25 million to Butler University and certainly 100% in line with who he was as a person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, speaking of great men, P.E. McAllister, McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are talking with Jim Danko, president of Butler University. Is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire most? You know, um, one of the things we had on our campus for a long time was uh, the Luger uh, run, which I think had some 25 years um of history here. And by the time we arrived in 2011, so the first one would have been fall of 2011, uh, Senator Luger um, was down to kind of walking a 5K. You know, there was a combination of walking that. And I was so privileged 
pr- at least two years, if not three, um, to kind of walk alongside him. Mm-hmm. And I already obviously knew him. Of course, I've have I've got a long-standing love of uh, or intrigue. Maybe I'm not sure love anymore is the right word for politics, but intrigue of of politics. And knew him, knew knew of his history back in '68 as the mayor of Indianapolis and his potential vice presidential candidacy and some of that story. And getting to walk with him and getting to know him and him sharing some of those stories. Although he also was a very a discreet person. He didn't necessarily, you know, sometimes I try to get a little, little more out of him than maybe he wanted to give up. But he, he shared so much about his own history, a lot of history of Indianapolis, his time in office, um, some of his chiefs of staff, I think, including people like Mitch Daniels and others that he worked with. Um, and, and he just was, and we talked quite a bit about what was happening because it was certainly happening even back in 2012 and 2013 with the disharmony across political aisles and so forth. And, and uh, you know, he talked about how, you know, how he worked across the aisles and his beliefs and so forth. We had a lunch two or three times uh, when I was in Washington. I had him speak on campus a couple of times. And probably that's the first name that comes to mind. And I, I, I we had a chance to, uh, you know, we attended his funeral when it was here as well and got to know his his family uh, fairly well. But uh, immediately comes to mind is Senator Luger. Also yeah. a I believe an alum of Denison. He, he was yes, another another alum at Denison. They they must put good people out there, and we, we try to st- steal them for our own benefit too. You know, so I got lucky right after Greg Ballard shocked the world, and or at least shocked the local world. That's that's a fair description, <laughs> I would say. Uh, when he won the mayor's office in 2007, there was a small private dinner uh, in which there's probably 20 of us there, and. I got to ask Senator Luger the question I always wanted to ask him, and that was, did Richard Nixon ever actually tell you he was your, you were his favorite mayor? (laughs) And he told this beautiful story about he's Senator, you know, Nixon had long time resigned and they're like at the Senate or something. And um, Luger sat down next to him. And they had some small talk and Nixon just blurted out. He goes, you know, Dick, you really were my favorite mayor. (laughs) And a lot of people in the audience had never heard that story. And of course, you know, being Nixon's favorite mayor in 1974, when you run for the Senate, isn't exactly (laughs) the place to be. But he was this sort of singular person, singularly Hoosier in his own way, served in the military and what he did for the city and the state is simply unbelievable. Not only what he did, but Jim Morris, Teresa Lubbers, Sue Ann Gilroy, Mitch Daniels. How important, and I've said this on other podcasts, and we've had podcasts that, that touch on it. How important is personal leadership? And do you think it's underrated as an element of organizational success? So personal leadership in the standpoint of the um moral responsibility of a leader and their ethics and engagement, uh, you know, creativity, willingness to take chances. I, I mean, you know, as, as I think about what's unfolding, I, I, you know, sometimes I talk about the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing, right. And, and, um, have you, do you have that 10,000 hours of legitimate leadership experience, you know, and, and it, that's the important side. You've got to, you've got to really, know the business that you're in to some degree. You've got to have practiced leadership, you know, um, and 
tied into that is integrity. I mean, it, it just goes hand in hand with, with leadership, authenticity. The people that fail the worst, I think, as leaders are those that have zero self-awareness. You know, they're not striving to get better. They're not listening to legitimate criticism. And, and again, they're probably in it for more selfish purposes. So if you think about failed leadership, whether it's at the political level or even as I hear other stories in other organizations, um, if you don't have this set of 10,000 hours of experience, integrity, mm-hmm. self-awareness, and lack of big ego, again, that, that's another thing. So any you know, it cuts across the whole thing. So that personal leadership side is absolutely essential for you. You could probably get by and people say, oh, yeah, they did pretty good. I've heard a lot of leaders that have been pretty good. Mm-hmm. But are you a great leader? Have you really made an impact? Have you left a place far better than when you found it? Um, and it takes a lot more than just experience um, doing certain things or experience in your industry. It it also takes, I think, a, a some level of responsibility to what it means to be a better leader and to make an impact. So, Does leadership play a role in the fight, in the competition for talent, both bright, potentially bright students or students who are bright and can come here or researchers or administrators? Do you think that there's something about Butler that is magnetic to potential enrollees or employees? You know, different institutions I've been at, there's always a kind of an it factor at some point, right? It's like, well, what made you come, you know, to Butler? It's like, well, you know, I got on campus, I talked to some people. So there, there is a little bit of, of a subjective feel about a place, but I, it usually is based on something legitimate, right? I mean, there's some foundation for that. I, I do believe that we really take the uh, individual, you know, their needs and what they need to, uh, to uh, pursue a career, to be prepared for that. We take that quite seriously. And, and, and um, that connection between our faculty and our students is an important kind of ingredient. And if you're, if you're looking for that personal connection, that intimacy, that kind of caring feeling, Butler does attract, you know, students of that type. Um, and we you also have to recognize that I think this helps you strive for even greater uh, perfection is that you're not perfect, right? There's, there's still going to be people that, believe me, they come through Butler and they're mad about something or they feel they were mistreated. You know, every mm-hmm. college loses some students. And you also have to take a look at those losses. We're, we're, we're spending a lot of time right now uh, focused on retention. What is it that happened along the way with particular focus on the first year experience from the time somebody's attracted to Butler until they hit that sophomore year? What does that look like? And you've got to look at the, the cases that didn't win. What went wrong during that? And, and um, again, I think that that makes for a special university, one that cares about the person, one that cares about that person's success. Do you find Indianapolis to be, I was going to say welcoming, that's not the right term, but to be the sort of intellectual setting both with the kids who are coming out of K-12 education, and there are other, obviously there are other colleges within the city or obviously within a, an hour or so. What do you think of Indiana as an academic or education centerpiece? Because we just had a speech just a few months ago by the CEO, David Ricks, CEO of Eli Lilly, in which he kind of took Indiana to task a little bit. Are you familiar with what he said? And, and what do you think about what he said? Yeah, I was sitting there, and I've talked to Dave Ricks about it since. Uh, and the comment I made to him, because I heard the speech, and 
I pretty much was shaking my head positive. Am I okay with some of this? I'm looking at my communication guy, make sure here. Because I know what happened to Dave Ricks afterwards, right? That's why we sit he, in the room right. with people like you. So you can yeah. look at us and we can yeah. shake our head. Yeah. So, but no, <laughs> no. and I, I did, I listened to what he said. And to me, I was actually surprised by the negative feedback. And I, I said, Dave, did your PR people know, was that really a controversial speech? I've had the same conversation with a couple other good friends recently because he was stating some reality that that sometimes you have to accept and and uh, and I we have great institutions of higher education here in this state we do a great job of attracting a lot of people we, you know right now we get more people from out of state at Butler than in state now the question is are we going to keep them right mm-hmm. um, and and there is legitimate concerns with the things that he's citing with the investments that we're making into the greater good of the state and to education. This is one of those things of, I mentioned earlier, not only do individuals have to have self-awareness, awareness, so do organizations and so do cities and so do states. Like, come on, be real, step back from what's going on and take a look at, accept it. We're, we're all imperfect in some way. It's mm-hmm. what, what he was citing were some things that were legitimate concerns. And I would think of a employer of the size of Lily is making those kind of uh, statements, we all ought to be paying attention to say, hey, you know what, how do we roll up our sleeves and make for a better state? Because you could always get better. So um, I thought it was a, a excellent speech. I think he hit on some things that are important. And, um, you know, we're here to find a way to help support that because we, we need the brain gain, not the brain drain. And we can't be losing um, these excellent students that we're bringing into the state, uh, you know, to move away. We need that talent in the state. And, and this is a war for talent right now in this economy, given the number of people that for some reason or another have decided they – they want to move on to something else. And we don't want to be a state that they're moving away from because of some of these things. How do you, I got this, my friend, Mark Apple was, did a terrific job prepping me for this podcast. Yeah. Do people know who Mark Apple is by the you way? Damn, every, we all do. Oh, okay. Yes, absolutely. Wow, that's good. And at least everyone I know knows who he is. <laughs> and I want to read these things that he sent to me and you have no better PR person than Mark Apple. Oh, he, is I, I, he is great. Terrific. Ranked Butler is ranked number one overall in U.S. News World Report list of best Midwest universities for consecutive years. Ranked number one for innovation in U.S. News and World Report list of best Midwest universities seven consecutive years. Ranked number one for undergraduate teaching in U.S. News and World Report list of best Midwest universities for 2022. Ranked number one for best college for veterans. It's going to make me cry as a veteran. In U.S. News and World Report list of best Midwest universities in 2022. Thank you for what you do for veterans. So given these number one rankings, is there pressure to stay number one? How do you stay number one? And if you got ranked number two next year... Would it be the worst thing in the world? You know, I'm, I'm somebody that has built a pretty solid um, part of my career on the on the backs of r- rankings, whether it's U.S. News or Business Week and so forth. And and uh, 
part part of it is obviously there has to be legitimate product, right? If you, you know, know your marketing, there's price, product, place, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, the product has to be strong. Otherwise, I don't think those things happen at the same time. And we love rankings. They're not all credible, but we love them when we do well. So so we'll we'll take uh, <laughs> we'll take all those things. But but there's, uh, you know, it, it's 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 great to be ranked that way. I really am very cautious about playing to the rankings, right? Um, I, I, I was at one institution that um, was, you know, always it, it, business business schools back in the day were one of the first ones where a lot of the really fo- like top MBA programs, Business Week and U.S. News and Wall Street Journal and all that and Forbes were, were ranking them. And and the university realized that, um, you know, if you if you can't go after both or two or three of these things, we're going after this segment. And they knew they'd fall to 15 or 16 here. But a lot of it, too, is also making sure that the things that you're pursuing are in alignment with the characteristics and the founding mission and the purpose of, of a university. So a lot of what you talk about there very much aligns with what we see as a, our values, right? And innovation and creative creativity. I got here in 2011 and, and, and my theme was, you know, imagine the possibilities uh, in my, uh, I set up an innovation fund day one. So there was a lot of push on innovation because I, I really felt that was going to be the fuel that was going to drive the change that we were going to need to elevate and to compete. So it's good that those things do get recognized. If we fell to number two, yes, I mean, you you want to do better, but if you fall to number two, you find out how they messed up the ranking somehow or another, because obviously- <laughs> Russian it, judge. Yes, yeah, so it, it could not have been us. <laughs> uh, but again, you, you, uh, you, you look at the aspects of those rankings where there's some data or information that helps you reset or rededicate yourself or maybe abandon in some cases, because, you know, this is no longer relevant and uh, it's more important to have X happen, for example. Yeah. Switching from academia to its its cousin sports, university presidents and athletic conferences are in the news a lot these days because of what's happening with mergers and schools switching from one conference to another. Do you have any general thoughts on that? Or how much does that play into what Butler does from an athletic standpoint because of this, these sorts of conglomerates that are taking place? And obviously, I'm not asking you for any specific inside news, but just as someone who understands how it, higher education works and also the economics of how higher education works. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of troubling signs out there, right? I mean, and, and uh, there's been the need, long overdue need for change. Um, because credible um, uh, credible concerns have you know con- in- increased uh, considerably over the last decade or two in terms of whether it's the pay for play or NIL or all these things that are happening. I think the problem that you know we find ourselves is that nobody really has stepped back to figure out what the best scheme is overall for universities because you're looking you know Division one sports you know one of 300 and some universities we're all so different you know uh, you know uh, trying to compete with even in our own backyards an IU or Purdue that's in the you know Big Ten and they've got the types of resources that they do with with a butler that doesn't have a major football program. We're all so different. It's an apples and oranges comparison. So there's no model that kind of one size fits all. And right now it's kind of like this, you've heard in other quarters, a wild west happening out mm. there to some right. to some degree and, and uh, wealthy alumni coming in and, and, and all of this. I worry about it. I also 
having sat through a lot of NCAA meetings, you know, over the past few years as a member of the Big East, um, I sat in rooms with 25 other presidents um, and realized, wow, this is just like sitting on campus. There's 25 different opinions. Being that they're university presidents, they all want to express it, even if it's the same opinion as the next person. And the, the belabored conversations in the inability to move the ball even one yard towards some solution is incredibly difficult. And I understand it because there's so many competing interests in different views of this. You know, the reality too, if you just look at the number of college athletes that graduate, that go to professional sports, it's like the tip of the iceberg. Right. And, and a lot of money is driving toward that. But unfortunately, that's influencing the way a lot of us have to compete. So it's going to, it's, it's getting increasingly difficult for the uh, universities that don't quite have the economics that large universities do to compete. And a lot of this, too, is driven by uh, and, and there's a very credible argument um, that that, you, you know, you, you can't just build the success on the backs of your students. Right. I also highly value the education that they're receiving as a scholarship and that because again 98% of students are getting you know four years tuition to compete in a sport and it's a great bargain so to speak for both sides there's a win-win there right it's become a little disproportionate when you know suddenly a, a conference is getting millions if not billions of dollars in revenues and and there's no real system yet to kind of figure out how to fairly allocate or to to take care of the students in that equation. So um, I don't have great, I mean, it really is, it, it's, a, it's a mess. It's going to be a, a thankless job to be the president uh, to succeed Mark Emmert at the NCAA. And, and uh, you know, I think that we still have a lot more on this thing to play out. So We have a few more minutes left with Jim. Jim Danko, who is the president of Butler University and should note is a graduate of John Carroll University. Did they have a big giant statue of Don Shula there? <laughs> you know, last night I was out to dinner with Frank Navratil. Frank is a retired dean of the business school at John Carroll. And um, so interesting. I got to know him as a fellow dean uh, and where I first met Frank. And I had to remind him of this a few years ago when we reconnected. I go, Frank, uh, in 1974, you were a new professor at John Carroll University. And I was one of your advisees. Uh, and he <laughs> wouldn't have remembered me from anybody at that point in time. And last night when I picked him up in my car, I go, you know, back in 1974, when I was this little kid, you know, returning to college, because I kind of stepped out for a couple of years to start my business. Uh, and so you were my advisor. Who would have thought that in 2022, I'd be driving up in my university car as a university president, picking you up to go out to dinner? And uh, it, it's uh, it, it's amazing. But uh, and, and actually, during dinner, we were talking about a number, you know, the coach at what San Diego is a John Carroll grad. Right. And I mean, there's there's a, a number of uh, executives, but Don Schuler certainly was the, you know, most famous. That, perhaps yeah 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 absolutely. well my political science advisor at IPUI now teaches here oh really Bill Bloomquist oh no kidding yeah so when he was up for dean I wrote his student recommendation letter yeah. and Bill Bloomquist is as good as it gets An you know incredibly it, brilliant man it is no, no matter what you're still kind of feel like even when I'm with Frank it's like you still feel like that college kid sometimes and <laughs> and uh, you know one of the I I uh, when I when I got the dot job at uh, Villanova's dean of business. 
I was also offered the job as dean of business school at John Carroll University. So I had a chance to go back home again, and, and I had a chance to go to Villanova. I ultimately, obviously, decided to go to Villanova. But, but I, I remember I told this story when I, I had it, when at John Carroll, I had appeared before all the faculty, not just business school faculty. And I shared with them a story about back, you know, 20 years before that, when I, before I decided to go off and get my MBA at Michigan, I decided to take a math class because I wanted to kind of get pre- prepared for what I, w- I was in for, because I was 36 years old. So I, w- I was kind of returning uh, after I sold my company as a full-time student. So I took a math class at John Carroll and calculus, business, uh, business math of some sort. And I did really well in that class. And I knew the professor. And I said, you know, I would really appreciate if you would write a letter on my behalf for my Michigan application, because I'm, my GMAT math score wasn't mm-hmm. quite that high. So it really would be good. And he, he said to me, he, says, I, he said, what are you doing that? for. I go, and I explained, I said, you know, I'm really interested, I think even in education in some way. He goes, well, if I find out that you go into administration, I'm revoking this letter. <laughs> so uh, I, I shared that with the uh, John Carroll faculty and they got a kick out of it because they knew Professor Kolasar, who was a notorious anti-administration person. So uh, I don't think he's alive, but he certainly would be rolling over if he were to see how his letter has put me on the path to where I am today. You know, So, so much of your educational background involves... Catholicism and uh, Jesuitism and your undergraduate degree, I believe, was in religious studies. Mm-hmm. How does that inform your life and, and give you a sense of looking back towards leadership? Before the podcast started rolling, we had a seemingly almost interminable discussion about history, which yeah. we could still be having. How does all that help you get through the day and make decisions and stay calm when you're wrestling with, with making choices that affect everybody? Well, first off, my background of having a religious studies undergrad with, which I think coupled with about four or five graduate courses with an MBA and my business experience, I've always felt was the perfect recipe. And it underscores the value of a liberal arts education with a healthy dose of professional education and experience, right? So those kind of that three-legged stool, right? Liberal arts and understanding of the greater issues of society and the world and you know, even history or politics, you know, coupled with, you know, if you decide to be a dentist or a lawyer or a business person, get some professional education and have some re- real world experience. I went I, I was running my own business. I went back to John Carroll as a undergrad business major. And then I had a buddy of mine who I'm still close friends with. He, he's a pastor of a Catholic church in Cleveland. I stay at a rectory when I visit Cleveland. And he asked me to teach uh, Sunday school classes, you know, for the, the Catholics. If you go to public school, you have to take an hour of what they called CCD back then. And he asked me to teach seventh graders. I go, well, don't you have to know something to teach that, that you know? And uh, so I ended up taking a course or two. Uh, Ed John Carroll, I think theology, uh, uh, whatever, New Testament and that. Um, and I just became fascinated. And it wasn't because it wasn't a faith based religious studies. It was true issues of archaeology and, mm. you know, literature and how, you know, this happened and that over time and how Christianity developed. So it was very much a, kind of a non faith based approach. And I found that so eye-opening, things that maybe I would have believed as, you know, some of the mythology of, of Catholic or Christian faith at the time mm-hmm. kind of got a little turned upside down when you were 19. You go, wait a minute, that's why that particular passage mm-hmm. happens to be in the New Testament. Or, oh, that's how that happened or whatever uh, 
political or social influences were at play at that time. And I just found that extraordinarily fascinating. In fact, I remember I was near the end of my undergrad and I, I took a course that was definitely a little bit more on the uh, more kind of uh, tradition and religious tradition side and the department chair who was a priest, he said, why are you taking that? You know, that's not, you know, and, and so, but the point is it just opens your mind up to the liberal arts right in those mm-hmm. 30. I was looking at a paper recently. Somebody was talking about cults and I happened, I happened to write my college thesis on that. So I dug out this 50 page thing on, on that. And just as I read through that again, and you think of the research and the way you got to think, articulate, um, you know, my focus on writing, maybe Mark could tell you that too. I'm just really, you know, I, I'm, I'm always editing and thinking about words and impact and so forth. Um, those are the things that that's the foundation to the, to where I am today. If it wasn't for that, you know, I would not be successful. It's, it's those things coming together. Again, I think there's this, this, you know, mix of things that you need to be successful and to make, to make an impact. And so, uh, I'm not sure that was the slant of your question. It might've had a little bit more, how does your, how does your faith guide where you're at? But what, Probably the number one thing out of that Jesuit high school and Jesuit college was just this sense of of social justice and really just justice. What's fair? Because I think the more that your eyes are open to the reality of the world. Now I'm reading a lot of, you know, political history and understanding how it really was, you know, back in, you know, 1700s and that when the Constitution was formed. People talk like they know what they're talking about and they're making their own interpretation go back and read some of this and try to understand how things come together because it puts you in a better position to, to, to kind of make your case and to lead and to organize because I think you become a l- less kind of my way or the highway and a little bit like open-minded to what's really going on in the world. And, and there does have to be a sense of justice and fairness. And, and uh, I think that's one of those things that probably has influenced me the most coming out of a Education, making an argument is another big Jesuit thing, mm-hmm. and and sometimes standing up for what you believe is a Jesuit thing, and and I like to think that that's where some of that influence has uh, come from and how it's played out. Last question before we get to the final five questions that we ask all of our podcast guests. Let's stay on the theme of faith. As a fan of Cleveland sports teams, could you sum up your sports experience in one word? frustrating <laughs> Cleveland sports I mean it is so darn frustrating you you really have to you're in for the long call I you know I, I listened to the 1964 Cleveland so this is connected to India at the time Baltimore Coats uh, a game where Cleveland won the championship game 27 and nothing, nothing on like December 26th of, uh, of of 1964 but who's keeping track listen to it on my little transistor radio and uh, uh, you know I was uh, whatever the heck I was at the time 10 or 11 years old so I've been a fan I read all these sports bios when I was a kid and and uh, you know I continue to follow it closely um, and yeah, but it's, you remember it's, Ernest Biner? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And the drive. Sure. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. The fumble there, you know, you just go on, you know, all that stuff. It's we really don't embedded. have time to list them all. Yeah, you do don't want to, you don't want to go down Cleveland's <laughs> tragic Cleveland sports history. It's really, uh, it's, it's a painful, painful journey. So. Let's, let's ask the five questions uh, with the president of Butler. Uh, number one, what was your first job? I mentioned it. I was a newspaper carrier at the age of I, I, uh, age ten through twelve, very early in life. Yep, yep. What was your first concert? 
That's a great question. I, I believe it was the Carpenters, you know, uh, back in whatever year that would have been, like 1968, 69. Yeah. If you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? As I, I, I just, before we started talking, I mentioned this this book I'm reading right now about the 1988 presidential uh, history. And, and uh, I'm, I'm just finding that to be so so fascinating. So if I, if I could remember titles, I would tell you what it is, but, uh, what it, what it takes, what it takes. Richard yeah, but, ben Kramer. Yeah, fant- it really is a fantastic book for somebody who's a, a political junkie who really wants the inside dope. And what, what, what I find fascinating about it is the, uh, focus on the individual and the thought process and the drive and, and the communication and all of that. Yeah. His dissection of the tank commercial by governor Dukakis is, I haven't even got there yet. Don't spoil it. I won't spoil it. I I think I know who wins. uh, (laughs) Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? You know, since I've been going through this journey of reading all the uh, top-rated presidential bios going back to the beginning of time, and it's been so fascinating reading about kind of you know, what happened in Philadelphia and founding fathers and the, you know, uh, Constitution Declaration of Independence. I wish I could kind of sit through one of those meetings because it starts to occur to you they didn't have microphones too, right? So how, how, how did those meetings happen? What were people doing? I mean, that would just be so incredible. Would you like to sit there as the members of the Second Continental Congress are editing, since you like to edit, are editing Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence, and he's sitting in the back, sulking and pouting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, when you read those things, that's why it's like you, we have, you know, a thing that I've been kind of on lately, we've been raised on so much, so many myths, whether it's in religion, politics, and all of that, Santa Claus, and, and eventually you become adults, but a lot of people haven't lost the mythology. So we do, when we think about those things, we think about it in current reality, but then you read the inside, you know, what this happened, that happened, how this person was ticked off because they're editing, and then you begin to think about, wait a minute, how did this person do that? It's, it really hasn't changed. You know, there was a pandemic back in the early 1800s, late 1700s, right? That's in the Hamilton book. And it was divided. The treatment was divided by politics, whether you believed in this side or that side. So things just have a way of repeating themselves. And uh, I find that era kind of fascinated right now. So, If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, living two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Talk about anything you want. Damn, that's a great question. I probably should say my wife in case she's listening. Right? Of a course, lot of people do. Here, I want to be with. Uh, I want to be with my wife. <laughs> Off the record, anybody living? Well, and they would answer all your questions honestly. Really? See that? And I wish you could go dead because I would love to talk to Nixon. Um, Amen. And, yeah, I mean that would be the probably the most most fascinating. I'm going to have to keep thinking about that. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, here's what I'm going to yeah. do. I'm yeah. going to say goodbye to the audience, okay. and I'm going to come back to you. Okay. Good. 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 You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been James Danko, president of Butler University and one of the people whose leadership is making a difference, not only at the enclave up here on the 
near North Side, but also throughout the city. Uh, Butler is an institution that even if you haven't attended it, you are proud of it. And President Danko and his staff and his students are the reason why. Thank you, sir, for coming on the podcast. And your answer is? Oh, I, I thought you said at the, after the end of the podcast. So it's been great to spend time with you, and I'm going to contemplate that. I'm going to send an email to the audience. Yeah. We'll put it in the yeah. description. Sounds perfect. I will say Barack Obama is the most oh, frequent yeah. answer, and George yeah. W. Bush is the second most frequent answer. See, I, George H. W. Bush would be the way I would have gone, too. So if you could, if you could have asked me that question a couple of years ago, that, yeah, that would have been good, too. So. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.